0: Hi, I'm Brooke Boney. Welcome to Tales of Sydney, a podcast from City of Sydney, where we explore what's living in your neighbourhood. Today we go under the sea into one of the most iconic parts of the city, the harbour. <laughs> Sydney Harbour is home to hundreds of fish species That's a lot of fish, more than you'd find around the whole coast of the United Kingdom. For thousands of years, fish and other creatures in the harbour have been providing food for humans. I sent producer Emily Nickel to find out what some of the earliest fishing practices on our shores were. She spoke to Renee Cawthorn, Indigenous Education Project Officer at the Australian Museum.
1: So in the harbour you would have fish like mullet and brim. Um, Annie Fran Bodkin is an elder from um, Dharawal peoples, and she told me a story that when you see the Sydney golden wattle flower, that it's a good indicator um, that the mullet are migrating up the coast. So that's when you would go fishing for them. So there's actually um, things that in uh, on the land that also indicate what's happening at, in the water at the same time, and they would use those as seasonal indicators. But yes, there was definitely plenty of fish, stingrays, turtles, whales would even get beached and they would have ceremonies where people would come from the south coast and they would um, eat the whale and share that meat with people from other areas. So what we're standing in front of is actually an archeological peel. So it's basically a bit of section of the earth that's been chopped out. And what you can see are the different layers. So up the top, we have the most recent layers and down the bottom, we have the um, oldest layers. And in this um, archaeological peel, what can you see in here? Uh, so there's obviously remnants of shells yep. uh, and bone. Uh, there's, a,
0: there's a big difference in the colour, obviously, between the bottom level, which is from 4,000 years ago.
1: Yep, so exactly right. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So What an archaeological appeal is, it's just a slice of the earth, and it gives you details and what you can see in there. So in an Aboriginal midden, you might find bones, you might find shells, but you might also find the remnants of tool making. So you might find some stones as well, or some files or some fish hooks, for example. In this particular one, there's lots of oyster shells. So what middens are is basically a rubbish dump of things that people have left behind. So when Aboriginal people, when we would camp in an area, we wouldn't put our rubbish where we camped, especially after colonisation because it would attract things like mice, rats and disease. So we would put our rubbish away from us. But what it also was, was an indicator for when you would move around your country or into someone else's country, you could have a look in the midden, see what they'd been eating, see how much they'd been eating, and that would tell you if they've been eating a lot of oysters recently, maybe you shouldn't be eating a lot of oysters because you're going to deplete that resource. So as a way of telling you what you could and couldn't eat. But it's also being used by the people south of Sydney, so the Darawell people. What they would use their um, oyster shell middens for is they would leave the oyster shells in there for about three to four years. I don't know if you've ever seen that chalky growth that you get on some shells? Yes. What yeah. that is, is it's the calcium leaking out of the shells. So once the shells had that chalky growth, it takes about three to four years, they would grind those shells down, they would boil them, and then they would drink it. And what it would do is it would help treat the osteoporosis and osteoarthritis because of the calcium in the shells. But how clever was that? So a was used not just to tell you what you could take from the land, but also used for medicinal purposes. And nowadays they're very useful because we can use them to date you know, Aboriginal occupation, but also look at the types of technologies and the types of foods and environment that they were living in. And then on this side, so these are some of our fish hooks. And you can see that they used all different types of things to make the fish hooks. So sometimes they would use bone, mm-hmm. they would use stone, they could even um, use the um, teeth from animals or the claws. So it just depends um, on what resources are available to you and what you can use. So when Aboriginal people, when we would kill an animal, we wouldn't just kill it to eat the food from it. We'd try and use as much of the animal as possible so that nothing was going to waste. Yep. So sustainability is uh,
2: the theme
0: that runs throughout all of this, this knowledge, right? Yeah.
1: Yes. Like, how, how do you think Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people managed to live for over 60,000 years? Like... Obviously, there's got to be some sustainability practices within that to be able to survive for so long. But also to pass on that knowledge continuously is what I find is quite amazing. So what we have here is a stick. It's about probably half a metre, close to a metre long. And then on the end is just a lot of twine that's been rolled into a ball. And it's basically just a stick with a ball on the end that people would bang in the water to break the surface tension which would then also send ripples and noises and echoes through the water, which would call the dolphins in while you're singing your song, and then the dolphins would bring the fish into the bay where you could then catch them.
0: Some of our sea creatures have an amazing life cycle. While walking along Sydney Harbour, Dave Booth, a researcher from the University of Technology, Sydney, tells our producer Jake Morecambe how one animal regularly gets mistaken for worms.
2: We've done a fair bit of work on eels in the past. These are uh, fantastic creatures. I, I, um, when I really got to know eels close and personal, they're lovely fish. They don't have spines or anything. They're very docile and uh, there's two species of uh, what they call freshwater eel, but of course they have an ocean stage. They come from up in the coral sea, the babies, which actually looks like a gum leaf. They're called uh, leptocephalus, their little leaf larvae, make their way from somewhere up north, probably the coral sea, float their way down, come up into harbors, and they crawl along in these very ponds. Crawl? Crawl, yes. They, they, well, they're worm-like larvae, um, the baby ones. And so they have the ability to, as long as the grass is wet, you'll find them meters away from the pond, crawling between ponds. Oh. Yeah. Like little garden worms, glass oh eels, they're called. God. So, these, these ponds here, you'll often get people inquiring about what the worms are crawling across the lawn for, and they're just baby eels doing their thing. <laughs> it's kind of creepy. Um, but in the, in the big rivers, uh, you'll find the females, the female eels, which can get up to a couple of metres long and be uh, 50, 60, 70 years old, we've aged them. Um, they tend to go up to freshwater. The males, maybe a little further downstream. And then eventually, um, they take off up again to somewhere like the Coral Sea, the adults at some particular stage, down in the depths. We don't know a lot about this. Have their babies and those little leafy babies come back down again. So it's an amazing life cycle, but, you know, here they are right here in the Botanic Gardens.
0: Well, that's disgusting, but also amazing. When you think of eels, you think of them living in a river and not crawling through the Botanic Gardens, you know? But just how much has the harbour changed over the past few decades?
2: The harbour in the 70s was a place you wouldn't have wanted to be in. I remember I was part of Sydney Dive Club and I think one brave soul dived somewhere in Sydney Harbour. Um, the outer Sydney Harbour has always been clean, but uh, really the 70s is probably the worst of it. We had raw sewage going in the harbour to my understanding. We certainly had, uh, had storm stormwater, um, all sorts of things. It was a dumping ground. Dumping ground. Yeah. yeah, so dumping ground. And I think I think things changed a lot in the 80s and 90s. Um, people started realising the world wasn't infinite, basically. That's what we always thought, especially the oceans, and that was the old adage. Dump it in the oceans, the solution to pollution is chuck it in the ocean. That kind of rhymes, doesn't it? Um, but also the seas were, had inexhaustible food supply, that they're an inexhaustible sink for CO2. And, you know, uh, the local councils have done quite a lot, actually, um, to prevent the worst sorts of pollution getting into the harbour, but inevitably millions of people surrounding a water body, there's going to be impacts. People ask, well, why has it got so many species for a little tiny harbour? It's got more than the entire coast of New Zealand, for instance. Well, for one thing, it's where we're sitting. Um, We're just at that spot. We've got the East Australian Current bringing tropical waters, tropical organisms down. Uh, We've got enough cooler water and upwelling to bring temperate species in here. So we're like at that that boundary almost between tropical and temperate, so we get the best of both worlds. Uh, also, the harbour isn't just a big round blob. Um, and so you'd expect the harbour to have really high biodiversity. We've got mangroves, we've got a bit, a bit of seagrass, muddy habitats, rocky reefs, shallow and deep rocky reefs, sponge gardens, all sorts of amazing habitats. And each of these has some unique organisms. So if you get a lot of habitats, you get a lot of species. Well, I mean, if you took the people away and all the urbanisation around the harbour, you know, and just came upon it, you'd, you'd really recognise it as one of the world's most interesting <laughs> small bodies of water. Uh, it's a Drown River Valley, so it's got all these amazing habitats. You know, I cannot imagine any other harbour in the world where there's a city around it to have uh, a, an iconic diving reef in it. So, you know, it, it, it's an amazing place
0: more than half of sydney's natural foreshore has been replaced with sea walls these structures help keep our coast together but they're often not suitable places for marine life a city of sydney assisted program found some pretty simple ways to bring back biodiversity to the sea walls jake talked to dr rebecca morris who did the project while at sydney university
3: So one of my supervisors, Professor G Chapman, she was um, a co-director at the centre. I worked at the University of Sydney. Um, and she initially started by looking at the impacts of artificial structures around um, urbanised environments. So these structures could be for coastal defence, like seawalls or breakwaters. They could be for recreational purposes, like marinas. And she found that these kind of structures, they were replacing natural habitats, but they weren't supporting a very biodiverse um, marine assemblage. And so after she'd done that research, then the next step was, OK, so is there anything that we can do about this and so she started off by saying okay the sea was really flat but on a natural rocky shore we have lots of different microhabitats like crevices and rock pools and pits and these are the microhabitats that promote the diversity of a rocky shore so can we put these microhabitats into the seawall and then will that enhance the diversity in that area and so she looked at crevices and she looked at pits but then moved on to looking at water retaining features that would kind of mimic rock pools um, but then it developed these flower pots, um, and they are essentially a concrete pot with no holes that's cut in half, so it has a flat back, and then it's been engineered to be able to be attached to the seawall with the steel bracket.
4: Would they be above or below water?
3: Um, so they're intertidal, so they are submerged at high tide, and then at low tide they are out for everyone to see.
4: And so what kind of organisms would want to have a good time in the flower pot? Like, what ones are coming back? What ones are staying around them?
3: Um, we saw starfish. We saw some um, little, like, mollusks, so little snails. We saw some um, gobies and blennies, so the little fish, rockpool rock pool fish that you would find. Algae did particularly well, so we saw lots of different species of algae, um, especially in the Royal Botanical Garden flower pots. Um... Then we had things like sponges and ascidians, which are other kind of sessile animals that they just attach to the to the flower pot, and then they just stay there and they filter the water. So they, yeah, I guess they were the main ones that we found in the flower pots, but there were some snails and things like that that are very common on the natural rocky shore, which we didn't find in our pots.
4: It's pretty exciting to see so many different organisms um, nestled amongst one another.
3: Yeah, it's exciting because, I mean, even if you don't directly mimic rock pools, but they still increase the biodiversity of the seawall i think for the first pots that we put in in total over the entire 12 month period we saw 80 percent more um species on the wall that were living in the pots so yeah they they definitely did a good job at increasing the biodiversity of the seawall
4: before you were saying that um to kind of know how to make these pots or see how best they could work there was only like one rocky shore area in which you could look to to try and apply that if there was only one where where were all these organisms
3: so organisms they most of them have a larval stage and then they will move around in the currents until they find somewhere to settle so lots of marine organisms actually disperse that way.
4: So they're kind of like packed up and moved away because there was nowhere for them to go.
3: Yeah, so, so I guess they, the larvae get released out and then they will travel in the currents until they find somewhere suitable that they can settle. I guess if there's nowhere for them to go, then I suppose they, would, they, they just won't survive.
4: What is the importance of having biodiverse ecosystems in a place like Sydney Harbour?
3: biodiversity has been linked to um, ecosystem functioning which is then important for ecosystem services Um, so ecosystem services might be say oysters they filter the water and they provide cleaner water for humans Um, also there's different um, habitats they will provide nursery habitat for fish species some of them the commercially important ones um, other ecosystem services might be, um, say, that they store carbon so they can mitigate c- climate change. And, and so it's important to have a, bi- a, a diverse suite of species that can provide all these different um, ecological um, functioning and services um, to be able to sustain the ecosystems and also to be able to sustain our uses of the area.
0: Another initiative to help the harbour is the creation of artificial reefs, something the Sydney Opera House has jumped on board with. Emma Bombabado from the Sydney Opera House talked to Jake. We need some kind of a structure that will be able to bring um, an
5: artificial habitat. So the idea of the reef, obviously, is to be able to do a research project which tests different complexities. So we'll have low-complexity pods, we'll have high-complexity pods, and the idea of the research project is to see which one can actually bring back different types of species, what kinds of growth we get on there, what is actually serving as the best type of home or habitat for our little fishy friends that we want to be able to enhance. The team, um, the scientists and the team are re- working really hard on actually designing something that is going to be fit for purpose for here, but then ultimately we'll be able to have a model that we can potentially roll out to all other places around the harbour, not only in Sydney but, you know, other areas with a similar kind of environment.
4: As we, you know, face more and more ecological and environmental challenges moving forward, how does our relationship or how does the Opera House's relationship with the harbour evolve or, or change over time?
5: I think one of most our most important roles at the Opera House is to provide that leadership stance. So to set a good example by showing that we have an important role to play in terms of contribution to the local environment. And again, it's about starting that conversation about how important it is to connect people with nature and biodiversity, because ultimately what people understand and what they love, they want to protect. So it's a really important um, piece for us to be able to globally go out and say, isn't it important that, that we protect the marine environment, that people get out and and, and enjoy the marine environment and also all of the things that we understand about the impacts that we're having, which creates an awareness and it's really important part of our education.
4: Why does sustainability matter? Why is it of such importance to the Opera House?
5: Looking back to the original design intent by Jorn Olsen, sustainability is really embedded into everything we do. Jorn Olsen was very inspired by nature. We've got the shells and the sails. We've got he was interested in fish. He was interested in shapes like um, fronds and all of those things, which really were about biomimicry that we know now and being inspired by um, nature. So our ability to be able to do that and continue a legacy is a
0: really special thing. If you're interested in sustainability programs that help the harbour and beyond, we've put links up that'll give you more information. Head along to talesofsydneypodcast.com. Thanks for listening to Tales of Sydney. Next episode, we're looking at perhaps the internet's favourite animal, cats. Special thanks to the Curators Department. Sydney University, the University of Technology Sydney, the Australian Museum and the Sydney Opera House. For more information on anything you've heard in the episode, head to talesofsydneypodcast.com.